Father in heaven, uh, we do. We give you all the praise for the things that you have done through Christ um, and the ways in which we seek to try to share that message. Father, whether it's uh, giving backpacks and praying for schools or going to different cities and working with refugees or even just gathering together on a weekly basis as brothers and sisters to lift up praises to you, God, we, we just offer our lives as a way to demonstrate our love and our devotion to what you have done. And we ask, God, that in all these efforts, you truly would receive the glory. Um, Father, as we turn to your scriptures, as we prepare to once again open your word, we pray that your spirit would move, it would be mighty, it would stir our hearts, it would open our minds. God, that we'd be able to set all distractions aside and come honestly and vulnerably before you. God, that we would come expectantly, that you would do a work within us. And God, that today of all days, you would allow our hearts to overflow with gratitude. When we look upon Jesus and see all that he has done, help our hearts be overwhelmed, that we would respond with joyful praise and a lifelong surrender, that you truly would receive the glory. We thank you, Father, and we offer all this to you in the strong and precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen and amen. Thank you all. You may be seated. So uh, growing up as a kid, I loved going to the movies. Can I get an amen? Any, any other moviegoers out there? I think it was kind of in my blood because my grandfather actually started movie theater uh, when he was younger. And so I guess it was just kind of ingrained within me. But that was just and has to this day been one of my favorite ways to pass the time and to just enjoy a, a spare moment and some free time was to, to watch movies. If uh, Obviously, I was still outside playing sports and doing all those different things, but if I had a chance just to, to fill up a Friday night or a Saturday night, it was typically a suggestion, let's go to a movie, let's watch a movie. I loved movies, and I think I've shared this with you before, but whenever I left a movie, especially with friends and family, the immediate question that I would always ask was, what's your favorite part? Right, like I, I loved dissecting the movie with the people that I'd just gone to see it and having a chance to relive it there in the parking lot to kind of uh, reimagine the things that impacted us, the, the, the surprise ending that no one saw coming or the, the great uh, action scene or the great stunt that took place. Obviously, if it was a comedy, always trying to relive those comedic moments and get laughter in the parking lot again. I loved uh, trying to, to reintegrate those favorite parts. And I think part of that was because I just love storytelling. Uh, I, I think that's what drew me into movies anyway, is just the way in which you could see a story so masterfully created that, that leaves this very profound uh, impression upon you and then can stir all these different sorts of emotions and trying to relive those and think, what was our big takeaway? And, and I say that to you this morning uh, because we're finally approaching our last Sunday in Romans. Can I get another amen? It has been a journey, y'all. We started this in February of 2022, and I went back and added it up, and if I counted correctly, we have dedicated 54 Sundays in the last year and a half to the book of Romans. If you take an average about 45 minutes of a sermon, that's generous. My sermons aren't always that short. Uh, but if you take about a 45-minute average for sermon, that's about 2,430 minutes that we've allocated to this book. And if you put all that together, that's around 40 and a half hours. Uh, thankfully, we spread that out over an hour and a half. And it wasn't like a movie where we were trapped inside a theater for 40 straight hours, right? Because if that was our experience, I know for me, if I were sitting in a theater for 40 hours, I'd be bolting for the exits before the credits could even roll. 
Maybe that's how some of you still feel. I don't know. You, you may still be sitting there going, I am ready to be done with Romans. Regardless of that, because of this journey and the time and tension that we've put into it, I can't help but want to ask you today as it draws to a close, what was your favorite part? Uh, what stands out to you? What, what impacted you? As we look at this masterpiece of storytelling and what Paul has put together for us, what is going to be the impression it leaves you? And I know not everybody has gone on this journey with this, but I would encourage you, if you haven't, find time. Go back and read this letter. It's one of my favorite letters in the entire New Testament. And see, how does it hit you? How does it resonate with you? And what impression does it leave? There, there are a few highlights that I want to revisit before we get to our final verses today. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Feel free to, to follow along if you want. But I'm just going to re uh, highlight some of the things that we've discussed that at least for me have left a very lasting impression and always have. Um, I'm going to start with Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is actually how we started this series back in February of 2022. We didn't even start in chapter 1. We used those first two verses in chapter 12 to help establish the theme. At that point in time, we were talking about a renewed life that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, it changes us. Right? It, it restores us. It renews us. And we use Romans 12, 1 and 2 to help establish that idea. And you can see how Paul eloquently puts it into words. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What we talked about with looking at those verses is that a renewed life is marked with devotion. And you see that devotion demonstrated there in Paul's words when he says, I offer myself as a living sacrifice. That is the spirit of devotion, the spirit of commitment. That's what renewal does to us. And in the same, at the same time, when we devote ourselves to Christ, we are then able to discern what his will is. Right? Something changes within us. We no longer conform ourselves to the patterns of this world. We start to look different. Our minds are transformed. Their minds are renewed. And as a result, we can test and approve God's will. Right? We, we have a chance to discern it. That renewal makes us long for His will above our own. In everything we do in life, we seek to test and approve. What is God's will in this situation? What is His will for my life? But it's not just devotion. It wasn't just discernment. It's delight. Because what we discover is that God's will is actually good, pleasing, and perfect. The renewed life is marked with devotion, discernment, and delight. We revisited this passage uh, recently when we were talking about what it means to live courageously as we've done throughout the course of this year. This is easily one of my highlights. Uh, you could flip to the left there and go all the way back to the beginning in Romans chapter 1 as well. Uh, I often find myself gravitating back to the way that Paul began this letter. There in verse 16 and 17, he establishes the theme that we've been working through uh, for this entire year and a half. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And you see all these themes that Paul um, just goes into great depths in pursuing throughout the rest of the letter, this idea of salvation, the power of God, a righteousness that's revealed to both Jew and Gentile, a righteousness that is by faith. That is, that is a constant thread that Paul seeks to explain throughout the course of this letter. But what's so interesting, and the reason I often gravitate back to chapters 1 through 3, is because as soon as he introduces the theme, we find that he isn't ready to talk about the righteousness of God, but rather the wrath of God. 
right? If you were to look there at verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness. And in chapter 1, we find a very important explanation related to the human dilemma, right? The problem within every human heart, right? That what, what Paul explains is that God has made himself known. He's made it clear. His, his divine nature, his, his invisible qualities have been revealed through what he has made so that men and women are without excuse, right? But what has happened is that we have, nev- we have not given thanks to God, nor have we glorified him. Rather, we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and have worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. And that's the problem. That's the problem with humanity. That's the, the human dilemma is to turn and to serve created things rather than the creator. And you can see throughout the rest of chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three, the results of a, such a condition. You can see the vices, you see the problems, you see the rebellion over and over again, you see the judgment, all these different things that are laid out to the point that in chapter three, Paul makes this very bold and very important declaration, there is no one righteous, not one. And in that desperation, in that laying out of the human condition, we find one of my favorite verses in the entire entire letter, chapter three, verse 21, Paul says, but now. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That theme of revelation, something new has been revealed. You are not without hope. A righteousness has been presented through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And from there, Paul begins to explain what faith looks like in chapter four and how Christ in his love dies for us even while we are still sinners in chapter five and how we respond to that through baptism and adoration in chapter six, but that we still struggle with the flesh in chapter seven. We'll do things that we don't wanna do until you get to chapter eight where Paul once again talks about life in the spirit. Again, one of my highlights, one of my favorite parts, Romans chapter eight, verse 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That took us through Advent, right? A reminder that when we look upon that manger scene, it is an unbelievable declaration of God's love that nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ. We go to chapter 9, we see a sovereignty, we see this incredible plan between Jews and Gentiles in chapters 10 and 11. We get back to chapter 12 and we talk about this courageous life that offers itself as a living sacrifice and all the different commands that are marked out there in chapter 12 that demonstrate courageous living. Uh, Over the summer, we've worked through some very difficult subjects. Chapter 13 led us into the discussion on politics. Uh, chapter 14 led us into very uh, delicate situations that we see today and how do we as the body of Christ handle disputable matters? How do we build one another up as the body of Christ? Chapter 15 revealed Paul's ambition, helped us understand uh, the nature of giving and, and finances. I mean, there have been some heavy topics that have brought this letter to a close, and now here we come to the final few verses. Now, the theme that I want us to build upon today as we bring this letter to resolution, what we see traced from beginning to end is that this is Paul's uh, incredible attempt to explain and reveal the salvation of Jesus Christ, right? It's a theme of salvation, the saving work of Jesus and our response to it. What is it? How does it work? How has God revealed it? And now what is your response 
to it. That's the theme from beginning to end. And so how does Paul take this theme and all these incredible elements of this letter, how does he bring it to resolution? What are these final verses going to contain for us this morning? But a theme of praise, right? It's, it's an invitation to worship. And with that, what I want to encourage you to see this morning is, again, we consider this theme that we've established for the year of living courageously, is that the courageous life is one that is marked by worship. Right, the courageous life worships and gives praise to God. And that worship and that praise, what we're gonna see this morning, is fueled by gratitude, right? I wanna, I wanna try to bring that into some form of clarity and what we, what we mean by that and how that gratitude fuels courage. Uh, not surprisingly, as I was reading through this and thinking about this this last week, I thought of a movie. Uh, because I like movies, right? And this actually took me back all the way to 1991 and Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Anybody seen it? Right? A couple of you, a lot of you weren't even born, so I'm dating myself. But Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, I don't know why I thought of it. Uh, I haven't seen it in decades. I have no idea if it still holds up, but I couldn't get this one idea out of my mind. If you've seen that movie, it begins with uh, Kevin Costner, who plays Robin Hood, Robin of Loxley. Um, he is in prison. And there's another individual who ends up being another one of the main co-stars of the movie uh, named Azim, who is played by Morgan Freeman. And at the beginning, uh, Kevin Costner, Robin Hood, makes this uh, valiant and courageous escape from this prison and has this moment of choice of whether or not he wants to save Azim. They would not typically associate or affiliate, but he, in that moment, decides to set him free. And so they both escape the prison, and as they're trying to uh, uh, elude the guards and those that are in pursuit of them, they're hiding at one point, and Morgan Freeman, Azim, looks at him and he says, why did you save me? And he says, it doesn't matter what blood flows through your veins, nobody deserves to die in that prison. And so Azim responds, and he says, well, my journey is now attached to yours until I can do everything I can to repay you for what you've done for me. And so he, he shares this journey through the rest of the movie with, with Robin Hood, and we discover he's this incredible warrior, and he fights alongside him, demonstrating this tremendous amount of courage. And that was the, the image I couldn't get out of my mind, that that courage, that response, that sacrifice, that, that, that valor, all those different things were fueled by gratitude. And that's really what we've read through Romans, right? That's Paul's story. Right? What Paul has discovered is what God has done for him through Jesus. And Paul's response is said, so now my journey is attached to yours. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing everything I can to show you and repay you for what you've done for me. It is worship. It is courage fueled by gratitude. And that's how I want us to end. If there's one thing I want us to walk away with today, church, it's that every single one of us, could have our hearts overwhelmed once again for what Christ has done for you. And that your response would be similar. That you'd walk out of here saying, okay, well then my journey is affixed to his. No matter what may come my way, I'm gonna spend the rest of my life offering myself as a sacrifice to repay him with gratitude, with worship, with adoration for all that's been done for me in Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at how Paul invites us into that invitation of praise in chapter 16, these final few verses. Starting in verse 25, here's what he says. He says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel 
the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles may come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So the, the end of Romans uh, includes a doxology. And a doxology is different from a benediction. A benediction is a word of blessing from God onto the people, whereas a doxology is a word of praise from the people to God. And so this is how Paul draws this incredible letter to conclusion. He offers an inscription of praise. And, and I want us to see this opening phrase and how he begins this that to me is oftentimes the source of our adoration, the source of our gratitude. It's with this statement where, where Paul says, now to him who is able. I love that. Uh, the word there for able uh, in the Greek is dynamis, uh, which if it sounds familiar is where we get the word dynamite and typically is translated as power. And, and so what we're talking about here is not just God's function or his abilities, but God's power, that we understand what he is able to do because we understand his power. In fact, this letter begins and ends with Paul pointing to the power of God. What did he say in verse 16 in chapter 1? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. And so Paul brings this word of doxology, this description of praise by saying to him who is able. And so my opening question for you this morning is, do you see God's power in your life? Do you trust that he is able? With whatever it is that you may face, whatever it is that you may carry, do you truly trust in God's power and in his his ability? I think a lot of times that question is easy to answer on Sunday morning, right? You come in here, you sing some songs, you pray some prayers, you're reading the Bible, and you're like, yeah, man, I trust him. Let's go. And then you live life, right? Then you've got Monday through Saturday, and you got all the other things that come your way, and then that question's a lot harder to answer. Do you truly believe God is able? And I think what we tend to do Right, that, that kind of betrays our true sentiments or, or shows that maybe we don't always trust in God's ability. There are certain ways that we, we demonstrate this, a, a lack of trust, that we demonstrate a lack of understanding of his power. One, one of the ways that we do this is by trying to maintain control. Uh, you, you like to maintain control in your life. You don't have to acknowledge it, yes or no, but I know that some of you out there, that resonates with you. We, we want control, and you spend so much of your time, so much of your energy doing everything you can to make sure that life is, is a void of conflict, of tribulation, of hardship, and filled with comfort and convenience and, and everything that makes you feel safe, right? We, we want control. And the, and the reason we often do that is, is we want that sort of protection, but a lot of times what we have to discover, often the hard way, is that, guess what, you're not in control. And so the, the heart that trusts in the ability of God, that, that is built upon the power of God, can surrender that grip of control, right? We can loosen our grip on these things because we trust that God is able. Right? Another manifestation of our lack of trust in the power of God or in his ability is through fear and worry. Right? We have any worriers out there, any, any fearful people at times? Right? Here's, here's what we struggle with, with fear and worry. 
right? This reminds me of this incredible story that we find in the Gospels where uh, the disciples are out on the boat with Jesus. And if you remember this story, the storm comes. And, and this isn't just like it starts to rain. I don't know if y'all remember what rain looks like, but you, it's, it's like when water falls from the sky. It's really crazy. Um, but it's more than just rain. It's, it's a torrential storm that begins to threaten the life of the disciples. And they are overwhelmed by the storm. Fear and worry settles in, and they look over and they see Jesus sleeping. And, and I think that is something we can all relate to because when we go through life's trials and storms, oftentimes it feel like God, feels like God is just sleeping, like he is just not even present. And you're overwhelmed by it, and you find yourself wondering, where are you? Like, are you, are you even paying attention to these things? And that's really the question that they present. They go over, they wake Jesus up, and they say, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Isn't that the question of a worried heart and a fearful heart? God, don't you care? Don't you see what we're facing? And it's a question. Are you going to do anything about this? I don't want to think about the, the seasons of my life that have been the most difficult, where Fear and worry were very quick to be discovered, right? Times in my life where, where we struggled to, to have children, we, we, we went through a long journey with that, or those moments where um, I saw my dad contract COVID and I was just praying for his healing and I was worried about what would happen if God didn't heal him. And, not, and in these seasons of life, they were filled with fear and worry. And those were the prayers I prayed. God, don't you care? Don't you see what's happening here? I think we can all resonate with that. And so here's what's remarkable about the story. You know what Jesus does? Jesus gets up and he reminds them of his power. He calms the winds and the waves. And then he looks at them and he says, why were you so afraid? <laughs> That's what God's power does, right? When we see God's power and we stay focused on it, right, it doesn't mean that the storms won't come but it means we don't have to have fear in the midst of them. We don't have to have worry because we know his power is greater. So sometimes it is this, this sense of fear and worry. Sometimes it's this idea of control. Another thing that we do that kind of betrays our lack of trust and the abilities and the powers of God is that we just grow apathetic and we grow indifferent. Right? We, we convince ourselves that things are the way that they are. Right? Nothing's going to change about our circumstances. There's nothing that we can really do about it. And so I just got to surrender to it. And as a result, we create a life of apathy. We create a life of indifference. And that's not what God's power elicits. I, I want to give you a, a picture of, of someone that truly believes in the power of God and the ability of God. It's one of my favorite stories in all of, of the scriptures. It comes from the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right, quick, quick summary of that. King Nebuchadnezzar makes this image of gold and he demands that everybody in the kingdom bow down to this image of gold on several occasions throughout the day. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down to the image of gold. So they're brought in to the king's throne room and the penalty for those that wouldn't honor this command would be that they were gonna be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so there they stand, uh, being charged and accused of this inability or this, this uh, rebellion to comply with this command and they are being threatened with immediate death and here's their response. They say, O king, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter, for our God is able. Love it. Our God is able to save, and he will. That's fearlessness. That's courage. That's a clear understanding of the power of God. But listen, it's matched with maturity 
and wisdom because then they say, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to that image of gold. And so then the story unfolds with them being thrown into the fiery furnace. The king looks in and he sees not three people but a fourth. And the fourth one looks like the son of man walking in the flames and they are brought out unharmed. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. Right? And so to me, it's a great reminder to us as we look at how do we praise, how do we find gratitude, we once again need to look at the power of God and offer a similar response recognizing that the world is doing everything it can to get us to bow down and follow all these other images of gold, constantly being faced with the imminence and the inevitability of death, right? Be it tragedy or illness or disease, there are so many things in this world that could make us doubt his power. But what we see is that Paul brings this letter to an end by saying, never lose sight of the fact that our God is able. So I don't know what you carry today, Whatever burden, whatever apprehension, adversity, or trial or circumstance, know that God is able. But here's the question you gotta ask yourself. Able to do what? Right, what am I looking for? Am I just looking for some miracle? Am I just looking for something easy? What, what, is, that, what is his power going to do? And what Paul says to him who is able to establish you. That word establish means strengthen, to make firm. Right, and so what... Paul is reminding us and what he is making as the object of our praise is to center us once again on this idea that, that life is going to be filled with adversity, right? It's going to be filled with things that are going to challenge your faith, that are going to challenge your zeal, that are going to challenge your commitment, right? And so God's power doesn't reach in and just nicely remove you from those things and say, don't worry, life is now going to be void of any sort of conflict and adversity. That's not what he does. He strengthens you so that you can stand within it, right? It, it's not that you get to be immune from these things, right? but that you are able to persevere these things because his power strengthens you. And so the question is, number one, do I really trust and see in God's power? And then number two, do I turn to it for my strength? Because I think a lot of times when we face adversity, when we face challenges, we turn and try to find our strength in all the wrong places. Right? We get distracted and we try to find strength and we try to establish ourselves based on careers, based on reputation, uh, based on money, success, indulgences, even our families. Right? Like, like if you're trying to rely on your spouse to be the source of your strength or your children or your parents, those are great gifts that God has, has blessed you with. They should be elements that help encourage you to be strengthened. They should never be the source of your strength. God's power establishes you, makes you firm, and strengthens you. Now, here's the key, right? Here's the key. He says, uh, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel. The full revelation of God's power, the full source of your strength is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. That's that's the object of praise. That's the source of our gratitude. This is the final reminder that Paul wants to leave his readers with. Don't forget the good news of Jesus Christ. His power, his strengthening comes only through the gospel. Now, these next few verses give a good summary of 
these themes that have already been covered. I'll just quickly review them for you, right? That this is a message proclaimed about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. So Paul has been explaining throughout the course of this letter, this is why the Gentiles are coming to faith. This was part of God's plan. This was a mystery, right? This is a mystery that had been hidden for long ages past, but now it's been revealed time and time again This idea of revelation, this idea of a mystery being disclosed is what drives Paul's writing. And and I want us to think about that this morning and how we would typically respond to a mystery being revealed and what it should evoke within us. Imagine for a moment a child that's not excited about Christmas, right? Like, can you think about that for a moment? Here's a child who wakes up and it didn't wake up early, didn't go jump on mom and dad's bed saying, get up, get up, get up. It just kind of like treated it like any other day. They walk in, they see these Christmas presents wrapped under the tree. They finally open them because their parents asked them to, and they shrug their shoulders and get back on their phone. Like, how would that make you feel as a parent? You'd be like, dude, like, where's the gratitude? Where's the response? And, and yet we know that that's pretty far-fetched. And yet, I can't help but think that sometimes that's how we respond to the gospel, right? Like, like this incredible mystery has been revealed. This incredible gift has been given. And oftentimes, we kind of just shrug our shoulders and prioritize all these other things and distract us with all the things in the world. And God's sitting there going, don't you see what I've given you, right? And, And when a child does embrace it. What does that look like, right? The child that's eager to see this mystery, right? What is the mystery? The presents that have been wrapped. I want to know what this gift is. I can't wait to find out. I can't wait to discover what it's going to be. And then they meet that morning with great anticipation. They run, they jump, they open it up, and they respond with joyful praise for the gift that has been given. That's our response to the gospel. First Peter uh, makes a great reference to this in chapter one. Let me read it to you. Verses 10 and 12. This is what he's saying about these, these writings of the prophets from long ago that Paul referenced here in Romans. In First Peter chapter 1, 10 and 12, he says, concerning this salvation, there's that theme again, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Right, so what First Peter says is that these prophets they, they had a chance to sense these, these uh, sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow, and they looked with greatest care. When will this take place? When will this happen? They were eager to know it, and the Spirit of God revealed to them that the words that they were sharing, the words that they were writing, were not to serve them, but you. Literally you. <laughs> and they longed for that day. They longed to know when this mystery was going to be revealed. Even angels longed to look into these things. Do you? Do you respond to the gospel with that same sort of joyful adoration and gratitude? All right, Paul wants his leaders to leave with that one final thought. 
the salvation that has been done through Jesus Christ. And so I can think of no other way for us to respond with that sort of gratitude, but for us to once again reflect on the saving work of Jesus Christ. You know, we have a lot of different convictions here as a church, things that we want to be known by, and the number one, it's out there in the hallway, is that we want to be gospel-centered, right? That everything we do, any interaction that you have with this church, that it would be centered upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether you're going to Houston, whether you're delivering groceries, whether you're coming here on Wednesday or Sunday or any other day, whether you're here in worship, no matter what capacity you're here, you are encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for some of you, the gospel is something you have heard for many, many years. And for some of you here today, it might be the first time you've heard it. But I want to make sure that we, we take a moment to understand what has been revealed and that it ignites the, the appropriate response of gratitude because the sad reality is that this gospel message has been distorted Right? That you look out in the culture today and you see all these things infused with it, be it political, be it stereotypes, be it biases, and it becomes increasingly difficult to really understand what is this good news. And so we need to be reminded of it again this morning, church. We need to build our lives upon it, right? That this gospel begins with God, a creator, right? That was the problem from the very beginning that Paul explains in Romans 1. That God has revealed himself, his divine nature, his eternal qualities through all that has been made. We have a creator. And what's remarkable about this creator is that he has created you in his image. That's going to be the focus of our next series through the fall. And how that shapes our understanding of our identity. Being made in the image of God, male and female. Because what that means is that regardless of your race, your age, your gender, you have an inherent value and worth because you bear the image of your creator. And that has remarkable implications for your life. And it signifies the relationship that he had intended, the relationship that we had, that we bear his image, we share in his creation. He gave us an entrusted responsibility to rule the earth, subdue it, fill the earth, multiply. That's what we were created to do. But we can all recognize that that's, that relationship has been broken. It's been fractured because of the sin. And sin's a word that we throw around in church, right? And we kind of think we understand what it means, that, it, you know, it's mistakes or it's the wrong choices, impure thoughts, all these different things that sin. But, but what I want to make sure we don't lose sight of is the heart behind sin, right? I want us to, to go back to the garden, go back to creation and see what it was that created this brokenness, that created this separation between us and the Creator, Right? And the best way to remind ourselves of that is to, to call to mind again the temptation that was whispered in that moment. Right? What was the temptation? It wasn't just that we broke some arbitrary rule and ate some fruit. Right? The temptation was this. You won't die. You'll be like God. And that's what appeals to the heart of sin. Now what does that mean? What does that look like? Because the, the serpent being so crafty, here's how he explains it. Your eyes will be opened knowing good from evil. And that's the heart of sin, right? This impulse to decide, I get to determine good and evil for myself. I get to say, I don't have to acknowledge God with that authority. I don't need to, to say, I want to be like God. I want to know good and evil. I want to make that decision. Is that not the spirit of our world today? 
It's the spirit of every sin, no matter its manifestation, be it greed, be it lust, be it gossip. It's these numerous moments throughout our life where our heart says, it's okay for me to do this. I get to decide right and wrong for myself. And what the Bible says is you you can do this. You can turn your back on God. You can try to worship that image that is within you, the worship of self, rather than the worship of creator. But what that's gonna do is create separation. And the Bible's very clear. It says that with that separation, the consequence for that is death because apart from God, there is no life. And so death enters the existence of the human race the course of human history. You know, as a missions pastor, I've had the chance to travel to numerous different countries, visit with so many different cultures around the world. You know what I've never had to convince people of? That the world's broken. Nobody has to be convinced of that one. I've never had to convince someone that you may die. Like, there's not a culture out there going, well, we don't know, maybe. Like, we might just be able to keep on living. Everyone knows it. Right, because that's the consequence for it. That when we have this separation, it leads to inevitable death. None of us gets to escape it. Right, God says, you want to try to live apart from me? Go for it. See what that creates. And it creates a whole world of brokenness that now introduces disease and illness and natural disasters, corruption, greed, all the different things that we now have to live with. And it's a evidence of the separation from our creator. And so death is the undeniable reminder that that's the situation that we live in. It is the enemy that relentlessly pursues us. No matter where you are, no matter where you're from, that is coming for us all. But here's the good news. There is one who is greater who pursues you as well. So what the scriptures teach us is that God is a God of mercy. He looks upon his people, he hears their cries, he hears their suffering, and he says, I'm going to do something about it. And he begins to offer these words of promises that begin to fill the pages of the Old Testament, promises of a Messiah, a suffering servant, a savior who's going to come and heal and restore. And people begin to look into these things. They begin to anticipate these promises. And what makes it so remarkable is that the beginning of this promise fulfilled doesn't come in a palace or a throne room, but in a manger. It doesn't come necessarily with the power of angels walking the face of the earth, but the innocence of a child, a child that they give the name Jesus, because he will take on the sins and save all of us. And so this Jesus grows, and the scriptures tell us that he is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and he begins to reveal our creator. He begins to reveal the life that we were intended to live, a life filled with purpose and peace and goodness and truth and holiness. And he begins to paint this picture for us, but ultimately what he shows us is the extent of his love, a sacrificial love, a servant-hearted love, a love that looks at his accusers and says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. And he offers his life on the cross. And see, the penalty that sin deserves, right, the death that has to be paid was upon his shoulders. And he took it for you and for me. And when he breathes his last, he said, it is finished, saying this debt has been paid. And the holiness of God and the justice of God was satisfied in that moment. And you and I found grace and we found mercy. But after he was crucified, church, there was despair. There was a hopelessness 
amongst all those who believed and had followed. They thought death had won again. And in that desperation, in that despair, they go to the tomb three days later, preparing his body. And as they walk to that tomb, overwhelmed with doubt, overwhelmed with sorrow, what did they see? They saw the stone was rolled away. And the angel offered this word that has changed the course of human history. It is the word that bears repeating and stirring our affections again this morning. The word was, he is not here, he is risen. And Jesus began to reveal himself, the resurrected Christ, in the garden by walking along the road to Emmaus, breaking bread with them, eating fish and breakfast with them on the shores. The Bible tells us over the period of 40 days, he appeared to more than 500 people, demonstrating that Jesus was victorious over sin and death. And that was the message that began to spread from village to village and town to town, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the world, ends of the earth, that Jesus has conquered the grave. That's the good news, church. Listen, death doesn't win. That's the gospel. That's the power of God. Right? That's where you find your strength. That's where you find your gratitude. That's where you find your courage. Because Jesus' resurrection was not one final moment. It was a promise of things to come, a promise of a return when all will be made new, a new heaven and a new earth where our bodies will be clothed with that which is imperishable and we will be ushered into a new kingdom a new Jerusalem where there is no sorrow, suffering, pain, or death. This is the promise. Are you grateful? This is the good news. It's the power of God. It is salvation for all those who believe. And it demands a response. So what will your response be? See, my hope is that our response this morning was that when we hear the story, we first understand we are called to repent to turn from those impulses, to go our own way, to make Jesus Lord of our life, that if we see and declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And as we make him our Lord and we begin to follow him and honor him with our lives, we respond with a life that is renewed. We respond with a life that is courageous. We respond with a life that is worshipful because it is filled with gratitude. That though our words may fall short, though we realize there's nothing really that we can do, we would somehow take all that we are and offer it as a joyful declaration.